There seems to be a tendency for human beings to want to celebrate someone as being the first, to be the inventor, to be the face wholly responsible for some grand achievement. In reality, it's not usually so black and white. For instance, Thomas Edison did not invent the electric light bulb, even though he gets credit for doing so. Films are that way as well. There isn't one inventor. There was a series of small incremental steps by many people that led to millions being in a movie theater watching a person with magical powers fighting crime. Today's tale is one of those steps. It began less than 50 years after the first photograph was taken. A man accidentally learned to create the illusion of movement by projecting a series of images onto a screen. His name was Edward Maybridge, and his discovery began with a question about horses. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're a stupid mind. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. Welcome to the first episode of Celluloid Days, my new podcast on film and film history. For the past seven or so years, I've been doing a podcast called Coffee with Jeff a general history show, and at the end of 2021, I decided to end that show and begin something new. That's what you're listening to now. Doing a podcast about movies is really a stupid venture, I know that. I mean, there are so many of them already. But here's the thing, I've listened to a ton of them, and most of them are, well, flat. I think it goes like this. A couple of friends think doing a podcast would be fun, And, since they all like watching movies, they set up a mic and begin talking about the latest Marvel film or some classic cult film. It seems so easy, no work involved. Unless, of course, you want to say something interesting. I mean, I can sit in a mall food court and hear people give their opinions about Spider-Man. So I'm hoping this show will be a bit different. You see, I enjoy doing research, so I plan on using my curiosity to make this podcast more interesting. This show isn't just for the listener, but for me as well, to grow and learn, to explore films and filmmakers. And I value your opinion as well. I hope to hear from you. I'll try to say at the end of each episode what my next one will be about so you can contribute. My hopes are that you will send me your thoughts. An email would be great, or better yet, an audio recording. It just needs to be short and to the point. I'll have more on that later. This show will be published on Fridays, and there will be a schedule. Like the first Friday of each month will be a show dedicated to film history, like today's show. The second will focus on one of my favorite films. The third, well, that's your time to shine. You can make Jeff suffer. You see, in an effort to broaden my horizons, I will watch any film a listener recommends. Of course, there are a few rules. The film has to be more than five years old, and I must be able to find a copy somewhere. And I'm really looking for unusual films, not some mainstream popular movie. I'm hoping to get enough of them to put them into a hat and choose one at random. We'll see how that goes. For the fourth Friday, I'm not sure yet. I'm still thinking about that. So, hey, I'm making this up as I go along. 
Anyway, enough of my rambling, let's get to the show. Today, let's start at the beginning. These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. The budget for the Marvel Studio film Adventures Endgame was around $400 million. That's a lot of money spent for you to be entertained. Of course, the financial returns made the investment for Disney well worth it. On the screen, we see things we know couldn't possibly be real, yet we let ourselves be fooled. That's the magic of cinema. It's all an illusion. Everything from a simple conversation between two people to an explosion of a spaceship during a space battle needs to deceive the viewer. Otherwise, the filmmaker failed. That is and always has been the job of filmmakers, to create the illusion of reality. The recent Hollywood trend towards films based on comic books represents over 140 years of progress into filmmaking. It's gone from workers leaving the Luminaire factory to a man in a red and blue bodysuit swinging from webs fighting supervillains from alternate realities. And as we watch Tom Holland swing around from building to building, we are witnessing a form of entertainment that began almost a century and a half ago with a rich man who had an interest in horses. The name of the man was Leland Stanford, who was born in 1824. He was an American industrialist and politician. Some call him one of the captains of industry, while others use the term robber baron. As far as I can tell, he was a ruthless businessman. Stanford practiced law in Port Washington, Wisconsin from 1848 to 1852. Then he followed the gold rush to California and made a lot of money selling mining supplies and general merchandise before investing in a transcontinental railroad. He became the president of the Central Pacific Railroad, which brought the rails to the west. On top of that, he served as the 8th governor of California from 1862 to 1863 and was a United States senator from 1885 until his death in 1893. He, along with his wife, were the founders of the Stanford University. He was a successful businessman who looked every bit the part. He was a large man with a neatly trimmed beard who wore an expensive three-piece suit. He was married with one son, Leland Stanford Jr., who unfortunately died at the age of 15. Anyway, Leland also had an interest in horses. He founded the Palo Alto Stock Farm and bred standard-bred horses. Palo Alto had a huge stable with hundreds of horses, and Stanford was interested in every aspect of the animal. Now, the story goes that he made a wager on whether or not a horse's feet, while running, all left the ground at the same time. The part of the bet is probably apocryphal. It's more likely that Stanford thought of himself as a bit of a scientist, and to him, it was an important scientific question in the quest for humans to understand nature. He may have also been thinking that if he understood how a horse ran, he might be able to get it to run faster. To answer this question, he called upon one of the world's most famous photographers of the day, Edward Maybridge. Maybridge was a very interesting guy. He was born Edward James Muggeridge in 1830. He was a bookstore owner in San Francisco, then became interested in the new art form known as photography. He took his camera to the Yosemite Valley and took many amazing images and became one of the world's most prominent landscape photographers. He also took a series of amazing pictures of early San Francisco. 
1830, he was involved in a violent runaway stagecoach crash at the Texas border in which he suffered a head injury. This injury is said to have changed his personality. His behavior became erratic. Those that knew him later stated that this changed him from a smart and pleasant businessman to an eccentric artist who suddenly didn't care about his appearance and worried more about beauty than money. He was known to refuse the sale of his work if the customer seemed to be slightly critical of his work. It seemed that something happened to his brain that freed his creativity from conventional social inhibitions. He was also known to turn down lucrative paying jobs if it was something that didn't interest him. And he also would risk his life to get the image that he wanted. Somewhere in there, he changed his name from Edward Muggeridge, Edward being spelled the conventional way, to Edward Maybridge, Edward being spelled E-A-D-W-E-A-R-D. In fact, all through his life, Edward changed his name or the spelling of his name, often removing a vowel or adding a couple of consonants, whatever. And when you look at his amazing images of Yosemite and San Francisco, it's even more amazing to think of the process it took to get those images. He traveled with all his equipment in a wagon. There was the huge bulky camera with a large sturdy tripod, a lightproof tent, chemicals, glass plates, and everything else he needed to take and develop images. He called his one-horse wagon Helios's flying studio. At the time, photography was still something new, and for one to be a photographer, they had to be both a chemist and an artist. The large 24-inch mammoth glass plates had to be covered with liquid silver, and from that point, the artist had about 10 minutes to take and develop the images before the liquid dried. The plates would be loaded into the camera. The lens cap would act as a shutter. It would be removed for a couple of seconds or even a couple of minutes. And any type of movement, like a sudden breeze, could ruin a picture with blurriness. Once enough time had passed, the lens cap was put back on, the plate removed, and then processed in the dark. So Leland Stanford hired Maybridge to solve his great question of a running horse. And that was quite a challenge. To capture a fast-moving object in enough focus to see detail didn't seem possible. Maybridge explained this to Stanford, that he thought what he was asking was impossible, that photography of the 19th century just wasn't to that point, but Stanford insisted he try. So Maybridge invented a spring-activated shutter system, this shutter system either operated at 1 200th or 1 500th of a second, depending on which account you read. His first attempt came in 1873 with one of Stanford's favorite horses, Occident. Maybridge created a backdrop of white sheets and covered the ground with a white substance to reflect as much light onto the horse as possible and to create a lot of contrast between the background and the dark horse. Occident was trained to run over the unfamiliar surface without flinching. But when the image was developed, even though Stanford reacted enthusiastically, Maybridge thought the results were far from satisfactory. The photograph was blurry and shadowy, so he never published it. But when he left, he promised Stanford that he would focus on the problem. But before he could try again, Maybridge had other problems. He was on trial for murder. In 1871, the 41-year-old Maybridge married 21-year-old Flora Shellcross Stone, and it was a strange union, because the two had completely different tastes. 
Flora liked to do things that Maybridge had no interest in, like going to the theater. And since he was often gone for long stretches of time, she would often go to the theater without him, which was fine with Maybridge. In 1874, the couple had a son, and this is when the trouble began. You see, Flora had been seeing a man named Harry Larkins, and although Maybridge knew about it, he didn't know how serious it was. After being shown love letters between Flora and Harry by Flora's nurse, and then finding a picture of his son with the name Harry written on the back, in Flora's handwriting, he began to think the child maybe wasn't his. In a daze, he traveled to Larkins' home, and on October 17, 1874, he knocked on the door. Harry Larkins was playing cards with a group of ladies. He got up and answered the door. Maybridge looked him in the eye and said, I have a message for you from my wife. And then he shot him in the chest. Larkins staggered to an oak tree, fell, and died. Maybridge turned to the ladies and said, I'm sorry this little trouble occurred in your presence. At the trial, Maybridge pleaded insanity due to the severe head injury he suffered in the 1860 stagecoach accident. And he was found not guilty. But the verdict was not because he was insane. It was because the all-male jury thought that killing a man who was having an affair with the man's wife was justifiable homicide. The jury explained that if their verdict was not in accordance with the law, it was in accordance with the law of human nature. One newspaper reported that, on hearing the verdict, Maybridge wept like a child. Now, it's thought that Maybridge's defense was paid for by Leland Stanford because, well, Leland needed to know the answer to the great question of a horse running. So, after about a month in Central America, in which Maybridge shot some amazing pictures, he returned to the problem of the horse's feet in 1877. By now, the blue-eyed Maybridge had a long, bushy beard that was all white with thick eyebrows to match. At the Union Park Racetrack in Sacramento, California, he improved his technique to capture Occident running down the track. And to Stanford's delight, one of the images did show all four of the horse's feet off the ground at the same time. He sent the negative to the local California press but they rejected it, saying it looked blurry and it appeared to have been retouched, even though retouching negatives was a common practice at the time. So, on June 15, 1878, Maybridge and Stanford were determined to get a final result. With Stanford's money, they built a long building along the side of the racetrack straightaway that housed 25 cameras all in a row. They were 27 inches apart, with a shutter speed of about 1 two thousandths of a second. Now, each camera needed to fire at 1 25th of a second after the one before it. So the question was how to trigger the camera accurately. With the help of Stanford's engineering department, each camera had a shutter system that was controlled by a trip wire on the track. As the horse ran and hit the wire, it would set off the camera. A Kentucky-bred mare named Sally Gardner was used for the experiment. The jockey had the horse run about 36 miles an hour. And again, they had the white background with a white surface for the horse to run on. 
Once the horse ran by, Maybridge developed the images right there at the track. He yelled from the dark room, I've got the picture of the horse jumping from the ground! At last they had the clear image they were hoping for. All four of the animal's feet were off the ground at the same time. Now, on a side note here, the big reveal with the photos was that, while most drawings or paintings people had done of horses in the past showed all four feet off the ground when they were pulled in or gathered under the animal, they found that the feet actually came off the ground when they were stretched out in full stride. Now, when Maybridge looked at the 24 images they had shot, each one with the horse in a different position, he thought of a new idea, and invention that would do something amazing. On the night of January 15, 1880, Leland Stanford and his wife invited a group of friends to their 50-plus room home on Knob Hill in San Francisco. They all sat in the elegant parlor as Edward Maybridge began setting up his new invention, something he called the Zoopraxiscope. It was a modified magic lantern, a device that was used to project still images on the wall. It was a large contraption with brass fittings and a large lens. Soon the contraption began to operate, blasting light from a burning jet of gas of hydrogen and oxygen on a piece of lime. It was aimed towards a screen placed on the far wall. The room lights were dimmed as Maybridge placed a 16-inch glass disc into the machine. It began to spin, and then, flickering on the screen, the audience saw something they had never seen before. The horse was projected. It was moving. It appeared to be galloping. The animation lasted two seconds and then repeated. Now, that might not sound like such a big deal in the 21st century, after all, we've all grown up with movies and television, and today's younger people have grown up with all sorts of video options, including their own cell phones. But to the people of the late 19th century, it must have been something quite amazing, seeing the projected image of a horse in action right in front of them. Nothing was written in the newspapers about that night. But on May 4, 1880, Maybridge rented a room at the San Francisco Art Association and advertised a show. He charged 50 cents a ticket. The room was filled with spectators and reporters. A newspaper story the next day talked about how the spectators were frozen and mesmerized. One reporter wrote that, Nothing was wanting but the clatter of the hoofs upon the turf and the occasional breath of the steam from the nostrils. Another paper wrote, Mr. Maybridge has laid the foundation of a new method of entertaining people, and we predict that his instantaneous photographic magic lantern zoetrope will make the rounds of the civilized world. Could you imagine paying 50 cents in 1880 to see two seconds of a horse galloping? And 50 cents in 1880 is equal to about $15 in today's money. That's how special this was to the people back in the 19th century. Now, this wasn't the first time people had seen animated images. The zoetrope and phenakistoscope had already been around for 30 years or so, but what Maybridge had done was something altogether different. It wasn't a little drawing seen through a spinning disc. This was a real horse projected onto the screen. These images almost looked like the modern GIF 
or GIF, depending how you want to pronounce it. In fact, if you go online and search for Maybridge's images, you'll find plenty of his images that have been turned into animated GIFs. This started Maybridge on a whole series of animal and people in motion photography, and he toured his invention around. But unfortunately, when Leland Stanford published his book, The Horse in Motion, in 1882, using Maybridge's images without giving Maybridge credit, the Royal Society of the Arts, who was funding Maybridge's work, pulled their funding, and it seemed he was ruined. Maybridge filed a lawsuit against Stanford to gain credit, but it was dismissed out of court. I believe this is because the court considered Maybridge just one of Stanford's employees. Therefore, Stanford got all the credit. Fortunately for Maybridge, the University of Philadelphia was interested in his work and began funding his research. Maybridge began shooting people in motion, men and women often totally naked, including himself. That's right, the elderly Maybridge was totally proud of his body and he wasn't opposed to taking pictures of himself with full frontal nudity. He also began setting up cameras in a circle and having them all fire at the same time to capture all angles of a person doing something like using a shovel. This is the same technique used in the 1999 film The Matrix, in which a bullet is fired at our hero Nero, and the action freezes or slows down and the camera moves around to a different angle. Between 1883 and 1886, Maybridge made more than 100,000 images as he worked obsessively in Philadelphia. Now, the thing is, Maybridge's techniques can't really be thought of as the first motion picture. After all, the crude animation was only a couple of seconds, and each image was shot from a different camera. And on the Zoopraxiscope, the images were copied, drawn onto the glass, because there was no way to transfer photographs from one plate to another. So in a way, they were perhaps the first cartoon? I don't know. No, Maybridge's invention was just one small step in getting to the motion picture. In fact, the first motion picture known to exist wouldn't happen until eight years after the debut of the Zoopraxiscope. That was a film that lasted about a second and a half and briefly depicted Louis Le Prince's family in motion. But that story is for a future episode. Is Mr. Martins engaged on our new book? Yes. It's a murder story. It's based on fact. It's called The Third Man. So, thanks for listening. Next week, because it's the second Friday of the month, I'll be talking about one of my favorite films, the 1949 classic British film noir, The Third Man. It's a wonderful film by Carol Reed, which stars Joseph Cotton, Alida Valley, and Orson Welles. Now, unfortunately, if you haven't seen it, I don't think it's available streaming anywhere for free. It's on a few streaming sites, and it'll cost you about four bucks, but trust me, it's well worth the money, and it's a lot less than going to a movie theater. And personally, I think it's a better film than you'll see in a movie theater. So do me a favor, watch it and send me your opinion, either in a message or in an audio file. Just keep it short, that's all. If you want to send me a message, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. 
Coffee with Jeff, all one word. I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page, a Coffee with Jeff Twitter page, and even a Coffee with Jeff website. Yeah, I haven't got around to creating all the stuff for celluloid days yet, but eventually I'll get there. But at least you have a place to reach me, right? So anyway, thank you. This is the first episode. They will get better. They will evolve. I will come up with some new ideas. And I would like to hear your ideas for the show to make it truly special. Anyway, you take care of yourself, stay healthy, and I'll be back next Friday where I'll talk about a fantastic movie. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I'm 